Mark chapter 12, this morning, verse 1. He began to speak unto them by parables a certain man planted a vineyard and set an hedge about it and digged a place for the wine fat, built a tower and lent it out to the husband and men and went into a far country. And at the season he sent to the husbandmen a servant that he might receive from the husbandmen of the fruit of the vineyard. They caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. And again he sent to them another servant and at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. And again he sent another and him they killed and many others beating some and killing some. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them saying, They will reverence my son, but those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir, come let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. They took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. And have ye not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner. Now look what happens when they hear and understand the message. Verse 12, they sought to lay hold on him, but they feared the people. For they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. And they left him and went their way. Verse 10 says, The stone which the builders rejected. I want to preach on that word this morning, rejected. There's no one in here that likes rejection. No matter what we do, no matter where we go, home, work, church, any endeavor that we participate in in life. We like to feel the acceptance. We like to know. We like the verbal approval that we find in others, the facial reaction. Uh, whatever we do, we, we just like that little nod of acceptance and knowing there's some kind of verification, what we did, what we said, uh, the way we look, whatever was done, it is accepted. Now, here's the difference in what we do. No, we know there are imperfections. None of us, ladies, no matter if that's your favorite dish that's being cooked or your favorite dress or uh, everything that day, the temperature's just right, humidity's just right, your hair's just right, we always know there's something there that others can pick apart or tear down or be unsatisfied with. But I do want you to understand in this text, Mark chapter 12, the parable that's being given, we're talking about the sinless Son of God. God in the flesh. If there ever were perfection, this is perfection. On this planet, the Son of God is the only thing that's ever been perfect after creation to ever grace this planet. And yet, perfection, when you can pick holes in perfection, you've got problems. And here's what happens. Christ gives them a parable. Now, this one is very direct. All parables were pretty plain and simple, although their meanings might have been hidden. But this one was so direct upon giving the interpretation, they made the application that was self-condemning. And the application was so well understood, their immediate reaction was, let's kill the man that spoke the parable. That's pretty plain. 
Now, it speaks of a vineyard. A certain man, verse 1, planted a vineyard. He set a hedge about it, digged a place for the wine fat and built a tower. Now, I am not a gardener, but here's what I do know. The little gardening that I have done in helping my mother was a lot of work. You know what a good garden takes? A lot of slaves. <laughs> a mom that says, I like to garden, means she has children that will be forced into slave labor. <laughs> it does not happen by accident. Rocks have to be removed. And plowing has to be done. And work, it takes work. And this, you go to Israel, I've never been. I've heard, I've seen, I've studied enough to know there are a lot of vineyards over there. But to put up a hedge anywhere on any piece of property is work. To dig a place for a wine fat, when, when he was putting the wine press there, the stonework that had to be laid, a tower, we're not talking about a 30 or 40 foot tower as we think of towers, but a 10 or 12 foot tower platform for someone to look over Uh, the work that's being done and make sure no animals are there destroying the work that is being done. A lot has been invested in this vineyard to make sure that it will produce fruit. Now, we know this is speaking of Israel's nation, God's people, and all that God invested in them to produce fruit. But how many believe God's invested in you? Now, talk to me about the investment he's made in you. There's already been so much. God has smiled on you in ways he did not have to. We're talking about the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the individual attention. Now, we're not just talking about as a corporate body. When we talk about God's people in the nation of Israel, I believe God smiled on America. I believe God smiled on Capital City Baptist Church. I believe, but it it goes way beyond that, the national smile or the corporate smile to the individual smile. And if nothing else, you ought to walk out of this place this morning with a clear understanding that God has invested in you. And if you've heard the gospel, God's made an investment in you. But here's what God did for the nation of Israel. He, He took this vineyard and he worked this vineyard And he invested in this vineyard. Go with me to Isaiah 5. I believe there's an important phrase in here that we need to catch. But this is a prophetical reference to Israel. And we see uh, that really what Mark chapter 12 is about is a short history of Israel through the parable of the vineyard. But look what it says in Isaiah 5 verse 1. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard, my Well, beloved, hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. He fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it. Does this sound familiar? And also made a wine press there. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes. And what was the result of his investment? It brought forth wild grapes. Some of you have seen that in your own homes. You made great investments and said, hold on for a minute. This investment is brought forth, not good grapes, but wild grapes. I often tell parents, uh, you can do everything biblically and spiritually and perfectly as possible. That doesn't guarantee good grapes. God put two of his children in the Garden of Eden 
in a perfect circumstance, and they were perfect, and he was a perfect father. And look how they blew that. Amen. You can shake your head right there if you haven't gotten anything else this morning. You ought to get some help from that. But he said, all that I invested in this vineyard and all I'm getting back is wild grapes. Verse 3. Now, inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Now, let me ask you this. Had God failed in any way in the preparation of that vineyard, Israel, if any nation should have produced good fruit and good grapes? And church, I, I don't want to park here, but I want to tell you, God's invested in this church. God's invested in our families. What more? Look back through history. We've got a Bible. We've, we've, we've got more than Israel because they didn't have, those people didn't have the indwelling spirit, the presence of God. You, you have the completed word of God. They, they didn't have that either. You have a local church body that gathers often. And if, and if that's not enough, you can come to Spanish church if you're bilingual. And if, if you're not, you can have that interpreted. And you've got good friends, God says as he looks at our lives and our church body and our nation and he says what more could have been done to produce the right kind of fruit if we're not producing the right kind of fruit as a nation or as a corporate body or as a family or as an individual i think god could ask the same question of us what more was necessary in your life in your home in your marriage in your church, capital city, what more could have been done? What more could have been done for the United States of America to produce good fruits? And you know what we're seeing? A lot of wild grapes. A lot of sour grapes. I, I saw a few sour grapes walk in this morning. Go back with me to Mark chapter 12. This is speaking of the history of Israel. So here's what happens after he prepares this vineyard. And he hedges it, he builds a tower, and the Bible says he let it out to the husbandmen. He rented it out. Now, this is very common. The owners themselves don't always work the vineyard. Sometimes they lease it out. And this is what God did in this sense. He went into a far country, and the season, at the season, he sent to the husbandmen a servant. He said, I'm going to collect... What is due to me? I've made an investment. I'm going to collect the rent. Now we're talking about the right timing. There's no cruelty here. There's no meanness here. There's no uh, over-demanding spirit in the representation of the servant. He simply says that he might receive from the husbandman of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, how many think with all that God's invested in us, there ought to be fruit and he has the right kind of expectations? Yeah. Aren't you glad that God doesn't put down his almighty hands from heaven and grab us by the throat and shake us and say, why aren't you producing fruit? How we can look back on your spiritual life and say, there's just been a constant production of good fruit every season. God just looks down at this vineyard and smiles and says, you know, when I want to go gather some fruit, when I want to go look at my investment, I just smile. How many say... uh, Thank God for his grace. Because 
There have been times he sent servants and I haven't had anything to give him despite all that he has done. Now, once again, here's, we know this is speaking historically of Israel, but there is a personal application, a corporate application. And I believe God ought to look at his investment in each one of our lives and say, I can collect when I desire to collect, but there ought to be consistently fruit, good fruit, being produced in each one of our lives. So he sends a servant. And they, verse 3, they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. Now, can you imagine if you did this to any of your bill collectors? <laughs> From the IRS to, to the bank that's covering your mortgage, you just said, I, I don't feel like paying this month, and if you show up, I'm going to catch you and beat you and send you back where you came from. Now, you may have wanted to do that, but you knew you couldn't get away with that. They were acting like they were the owners of this vineyard. Now, these are speaking of God's men, God's prophets that were sent to Israel in the ill treatment. And here's what you see. You see a digression, or you could call it a, I don't call it a progression because this is actually going the wrong way. But look what it says. Verse 4, and again he sent unto them another servant. Can you imagine this servant? Don't you think that if it was a servant from Texas, he'd be packing? <laughs> right? He would say, if the last guy got beat up and sent home, I like my teeth, I like my nose, I like my facial structure. I don't feel like getting beat and sent away empty. But again, they sent this servant and him, they cast stones before he ever gets there. They're throwing rocks at the boy. They wounded him in the head. Merry Christmas to this servant. They sent him away shamefully handled. Now here's what you read in your Bible. If you see these prophets and the way they were treated, they were treated this way. Great shame throwing rocks. You're talking about Jeremiah. Shut up in prison, cast into a pit, sent to a dungeon, dungeon. Micaiah, not only was he cast in prison, but he was smitten in the face on several occasions by the religious, the greatest religious leader of his day, the false religious leader. But you just see this pattern, and it goes all the way into the New Testament. You, you see John the Baptist, head cut off, uh, you don't go to Acts chapter 7. Let's just see one instance there where this is mentioned by Stephen in his sermon. How many remember how this ended up? Not so well. Acts 7 verse 51, speaking to this same crowd, he says, ye stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always, what? Resist the Holy Ghost. Rejection is not about you if you're preaching the Word of God. It's about rejection of the Holy Ghost of God. I don't know how many times I've preached. You can see people's verbal, uh, facial rejection to the principles of the Word of God. I don't want to ever take that personal because if I'm preaching this book, it's not a rejection of Adam Thompson, but a rejection of the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do ye. Now, here's what made them riled up. Look what it says, verse 52. 
Which of the prophets have you not your fathers persecuted? He said every single last one of them. Every man ever sent of God was rejected by the people of Israel and they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one of whom you've been now the betrayers and murderers. Verse 44, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They gnashed on him with their teeth. That's rejection on a different level. I've had people yell at me and slam their doors, but I've never had anyone sink their teeth into me. Anybody ever had that pleasure (laughs) outside of the nursery? (laughs) I mean, when you run upon a preacher and start eating him like a cannibal, you're out of your ever-loving mind. That's called anger on a different level. That is rejection, not of Stephen, but he said... Every prophet that came with a message, you hated, you stoned, you beat up, you wounded in the head, and the digression gets worse. Go back with me. Look what happens here in our story. They're not just going to beat them and stone them and wound them and shamefully handle them. Verse 5, he sent another, and him they killed. Now, folks, at this point, I wouldn't want to be one of those servants. But if you're called of God to take the message of God to people that don't want to hear from God, you know what the reaction is going to be, but you do not have a choice. These are not God's servants. They are God's slaves. They do what they've been commanded to do. It would be nice as a preacher to alter the message, which so many do. It would be nice to avoid certain subjects. I've made some of our best people angry on occasion, but I don't have a choice. You don't ever want a, you don't ever want a preacher in this pulpit who will deviate from the word of God based upon a reaction, uh, uh, whether that's facially or verbally. You don't ever want to be one of those people. This says, I want a preacher that can be manipulated by the congregation. Can you imagine that kind of coward? And our pulpits are filled with those kind of cowards. They can't even deal with their wife, let alone a congregation. They killed him and many others. And this is the history of God's prophets. Many that we hear about, not in the word of God, it didn't reveal their end. But if you look back at Jewish history... Uh, you would see many of those, including Isaiah and Jeremiah, according to Jewish history, who were slain. Ezekiel was killed by a man that he rebuked with the word of God, that became angered with him. But this is a reaction to God's men and God's prophets. Look what it says. Beating, some, killing, some. Now here's the grace and the love and mercy of the owner of the vineyard. Look what he does. Have yet, therefore, one son, his well-beloved. Now, let me ask you this. If you had a son, well-beloved, you had a vineyard that you had invested in, and you knew the treatment of the other servants, if they had been stoned and beaten and shamefully handled and killed, don't you think that you would take the worst of your servants and say, I got a plan for your life, and it's not a good one. You're going to go collect rent. You're going to go gather some of the fruit. Now, none of this was unreasonable. 
think about this. Doesn't the owner of the vineyard have the right to send someone? He's not even saying, I need cash. He's not saying, this is going to be $5,000 a square foot. He said, just give me some of the fruit from my land, my property, where you've made a living. And God's always gracious and God's always kind. But the very fact that he was going to send his son, this is not a place where I'd send my son. He's going to send his well-beloved. And here's what Matthew 21, the parallel text says about it. He says, they will, what? Reverence my son. Now, here's the problem. Human nature is so corrupt. You would think, church, wouldn't you think if this crowd, this crowd, suits and ties and dress like Christians, Bible in their hand. I mean, they even know how to shake hands like a Christian. When they talk, when they greet other people, they even know how to change their voice. Hello, my brother. That's good, like, you don't talk like that the rest of the week. But you mean, hello. You went your dignified voice. You went your dignified stance. You went your dignified smile. Your own kids are saying, who is that person? Who is that lady? That you would, you would think of any group on the planet, this would be the group that would reverence God's dear son, that would reverence his holy word, that would reverence his message and his messengers. He said, I'm going to send my son. And anybody see that the history going on here? Now, it becomes prophetical. It went from historical now to prophetical because he's talking about this person standing there providing the message, the very son of God that had been sent, the last messenger, and then he tells them prophetically what is about ready to happen to him for delivering the message and examining the fruit. Now, this is the nation of Israel. Who are the husband men working the vineyard? The leaders, the, the spiritual leaders, that's the scribes, the Pharisees, right? We're, we're talking about the Levites and the priests. The very group that is rejecting Jesus Christ will soon, he's told them, go, to, don't, go back a couple chapters to Mark chapter 8. We know it was prophesied, Mark 8.31. Now, once again, in the progression of those that were rejecting him, we know from his birth, he was rejected as the Messiah, the Son of God. His own family members, those in his own town, those in his own community and neighborhood. But the groundswell of rejection now is growing. Look what it says in Mark 8, 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be, there it is again, what? Rejected. Now let me ask you this. How many of you... This far into life, you, you know why teenagers do some of the stupidest things on the planet? How many of you look back at some of your teen photos? Like, did I really wear those? Did I really comb my hair like that? I've had teenagers say, why do you comb your hair like that? I don't have a choice at this stage of life. If I tried a mohawk, I would have to push everything up from the sides. But have you ever looked at teens and thought, why are you trying that hard to look stupid? They want acceptance. You know what happens at some point? You stop caring. Dad, your pants are sagging. Who cares? Some of you look at me like you still care. 
But this is God. This is God in the flesh. This is God's son. There is no fault in him. There's no sin in him. No wrong word has ever slipped out of his mouth. No wrong reaction, no improper reaction has ever taken place. He's never been angered at the wrong time with the wrong person. He's never let one of those angry words slip out of his mouth. Even the men that we hold in the highest esteem, even those that I consider to be the dearest saints of God, I've still seen them at a moment have a weakness, but not the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he was rejected. Let me ask you this. Who are we to think if we come with God's message, no matter how appealing we try to make, we do want to adorn the gospel of God. But here's the bottom line. There is no way to keep man in his sinful state, to polish it and shine it and bring it in such a manner that no one will reject it. They took the very son of God and rejected him with his message, and they slew him. Now look what it says. Go back with me to Mark chapter 11. We know he came to his own. His own received him not. Isaiah 53 says this. He's despised, rejected a man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we, the very Son of God, esteemed him not. Now look back in chapter 11. Look what it says, verse 27. They came, they come again to Jerusalem, and as he, wa- as he was walking in the temple, there come to him the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. And they say unto him, These are the custodians of the vineyard at this time that he's referring to. They say unto him, By what authority doest thou these things? They reject his authority. Now, let me ask you this. If you're, if you're a child of God and you want to be a witness, you want to shine a light in a dark world, what is your only authority? The Word of God. This isn't about your opinion. This isn't about your religion. This isn't about you trying to get other people to become a Baptist. How many of you have talked to someone they say, oh, I don't want to be a Baptist? They say, that's not a problem. Oh, I, I don't like evangelicals. I don't either. I'm surrounded by them. I don't care for them. It's not about pressing you into religion. This is about the authority of the word of God. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you would knock on a stranger's door and tell them they're a lost sinner headed to hell if you didn't have the authority of the word of God? Would you you ever even consider that? I mean, really? Uh, Let me tell you something. From birth, you were just a wicked person. That's not going to fall well onto those ears unless you have the authority of the Word of God. Aren't you glad that when you go to witness, you have a book that you carry with you that's literally from heaven, God's Word. Not just inspired, but preserved. And and you get to open up the book and you say, now look what the Bible says in Luke 16. Do you want to just walk someone through the halls of hell without the Word of God? Okay, any of this would be absolute insanity. By what authority, I I don't want to spend five minutes on that platform without the word of God. Now, here's what I know. I never want to be improper. I never want to be inappropriate. I've seen a lot of that happen behind pulpits. I've seen some of that happen in witnessing. But I'll tell you what I want 
you to know, anything that I preach, I have no authority at all unless I'm receiving my authority from the very word of God by preaching God's word. And here's what he's doing. He's coming with the authority from heaven and they're questioning his authority. Now, let me ask you this. When, when this owner sends his son, you know what they're questioning? His very authority. He is the owner of the vineyard. Now, hold on for a minute, Christian. Before we point a finger at the lost world out there that rejects the authority of the word of God, this happens in Christianity. It doesn't end at salvation. You know why every person in here still has sentence reserved and coddled and continually taking place in our lives? Because we have rejected, to some degree, the authority of God's Word. Oh, preacher, that's just your opinion. Well, actually, it's not. Well, preacher, you know, oh, I came from another church and that wasn't preached. Well, they ought to preach the Word of God. You're out of your mind if you think this man's going to stand up that pulpit. And... Have you ever heard somebody preach their opinion? I've been in, I've been in pulpits in conferences and churches before where you sit there and listen for 30 minutes, a man go on a rant about cowboy boots or blue shirts. Preachers shouldn't wear blue shirts. They say, listen, you have that opinion, I don't care. Just don't bring it to the pulpit. I don't wear blue shirts that often in the bar. I like white shirts. You know what? It really doesn't matter. That's called opinions. But when you're preaching the word of God, that comes with a different authority. And here's what happened. This son came with the authority from heaven and Jesus Christ came with the authority from heaven. And you know what these people are going to do? Constantly question his very authority. Rejecting it. Now look what it says in verse 27. They come again to Jerusalem and as he, speaking of Christ, was walking in the temple. Now imagine this moment. God in the flesh, walking in. I wonder what the reaction would be this morning if if Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, walked in through our doors. I wonder if someone would even recognize him. Be careful about rejecting these men for their reaction because who's to say that we'd react any differently? He was walking in the temple. There come to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, And they said to him, you know what they're doing? They're rejecting his very presence. Now let me ask you this this morning. Do you know how much time is wasted at church services? Let me ask you a couple questions this morning. How many of you believe that you are saved and dwelt by the very Spirit of God? Okay, so you have his presence. How many believe in a place like this church, God's presence is actually here? Okay, so not just inside of you, but inside of this house, the very presence of God. Now, let me ask you this. How many times have you walked into church service and laughed and never heard the voice of God? The pastor's tone wasn't appealing enough. The text, you'd already heard that text by someone else preached on. He wasn't passionate enough. He didn't yell enough. Maybe he yelled too much. He didn't have a story. He wasn't entertaining enough. He didn't make you laugh. You had someone sitting beside you that was more entertaining than the man in the pulpit. 
You know what they're rejecting? The very presence of God. You know what we're doing in 2022? Let me ask you this. Where are you actually meeting with, if you're not meeting with God right here, where and when are you meeting with God? I was hunting with a man this week, unsaved, and here's what he told me. He said, preacher, he said, I met with God more times on my dear stand, in my dear stand, than I have in church. I said, Chris, that sounds good, but I'm a hunter. I said, I don't know of a man that prays more in a deer stand than I do. <laughs> but I go to a deer stand to shoot deer. I said, if that's where you meet with God, you've got a spiritual problem. Here's what, here's what they're rejecting. Okay, consider this for a minute. We know of all the messianic promises. God in the flesh shows up. Jesus Christ the Savior is in their midst. And you know what they're doing? By what authority? His very presence made everything awkward. Now let me ask you this. If, if I showed up to your house to just today, just like it is, uninvited, I just showed up at your house. Or maybe, I didn't tell you this week, I just showed up. I don't do this anymore. I, I do this. I do this in our Spanish church because Spanish people are more humble and loving and kind than whites. You say, that sounds racist. It is. But it's true. If I show up unexpected on their door, they invite me in and say, can you stay for 30 minutes? If there's not food on the table, they'll get food on the table. But you know why? You don't want pastor to come unannounced. It will make you awkward. Pastor's a clean freak. And we didn't vacuum. Pastor's a clean freak and their dish is in the sink. Plus, who knows what music is playing in the background. The TV might be on and he might feel awkward. Do you, do you understand where we're going this morning? I'm not trying to make you feel awkward, but they're just things you know if I catch you at that moment might make you feel awkward. Let me ask you this. How many of you say, Jesus in my house would not make me awkward? In that conversation, at that table. Now you either believe in his presence or you don't. We are living examples of Christian atheism. Oh, he's with me all the time. Then why in the world are you doing that? Why in the world are you talking like that? Why in the world are you acting like that? There is a literal rejection of his presence. The difference is it was visible in this case that made his presence made them awkward. And they said, we don't like you in our temple. Amen. Thank you, preacher. Look what it says, chapter 12, verse 12. So when he tells them this parable, here's the reaction. They sought to lay hold on him. Now, here's what's crazy. You do understand the religious leaders, the ties, the suits. You say, not in the day, but you understand what I'm saying. They're supposed to know how to be appropriate and holy. And you know what their reaction to this parable? 
I want to wrap my fingers around that man's neck and squeeze the oxygen out of his lungs. Go with me to Matthew chapter 21. Now follow me for just another moment. Matthew 21, the parallel text, look what it says. Verse 40. There was a clear understanding in Christ. They're going to ask them, When the Lord therefore the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? And they... Who the scribes and the Pharisees, those that are listening to the parable, they say unto him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men. Now, how many of you understand at this point, they're not getting the message? Okay, this, he's speaking this directly to them. So he's going to trap them. How many of you ever done this with your kids? You lead them into the trap, then you ask them a question, they give you the answer and say, aha, uh-huh. that's what I was talking about. You're more intelligent than them, and you set the trap, you laid it, and you, you grabbed them by the hand, you walked them right into it. And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ is going to do. He's setting the trap, he states the parable, then he asks them the question, naturally, the owner of the vineyard, what would he do if this were the case? How would he react? And they say to him, he will miserably, he's speaking of them, destroy, so how are they speaking of themselves? As wicked men, he will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their season. He says, you know that. Looky there, you guys did have a right answer in you. You accidentally stumbled upon the truth. Now hold on. Now what did we just read in Mark 11? When they suddenly realize, oh, he's talking about us. Then they said, let's just grab him by the neck and strangle him to death. Are you seeing this? Now, let's go back to our subject matter this morning. Rejection. Here's what happens. Israel rejected the owner of the vineyard, and the son sent to examine and collect the fruit. What happened to Israel? Did that prophecy come true or not? Oh, it wasn't but a few decades later, and the Romans come, 70 A.D., they literally destroy Jerusalem. All those prophecies came true, and for the next 1,800 years, Israel ceased to exist as a nation. Absolute devastation and destruction. What about the husbandmen? Okay, tell me about high priests in Israel. What about the lineage of Aaron? What about the tribe of Levi? Did that not too cease at that moment? The husbandmen were run out of the vineyard. The vineyard was absolutely devastated. Now, let me say this. This application doesn't just apply to Israel in this specific vineyard in a historical sense because we're looking back 2,000 years at a prophecy that's been fulfilled. We're looking at a general way anybody that rejects God, his word, or his son brings judgment upon himself. Now, church, this is where I need you to catch this because this is where the application. Too often, preachers preach, and they preach the text, oh, this is the day and age of information. I've never been so overloaded 
by information. Uh, people have uh, the Word of God digitized. It's easy to cross-reference. And now so many books have been written in history and commentaries and everything else. A pastor can stand up and give you 45 minutes of information and 10 seconds of personal application. There's no way we need to leave here this morning without the application. Yes. Which is, we are confronted with God and His Word and His Son. And here's what we do. We choose what we enjoy applying and doing. We choose our fruit. And we look at the world out there and say, they reject God. Well, here's the consequence of their rejection. It is eternal damnation in hell. That's pretty severe. What about our nation, which was founded upon God's word and Bible principles? And you look back, oh, they're trying to totally uh, rearrange and change history in the history books. But you guys know, if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., from the verses that are all over those halls and government buildings, from Thomas Jefferson. Here's what they tried to do. They tried to make George Washington all those men. There were some deists, but not all were deists. I believe there were a large group of those that were Christians. But they've tried to eliminate any biblical history from our past. But let me ask you this. No matter what our history has been, we're so far from God in this book in our present day. When you even tried to dig up our history, it's hard for the average Christian to comprehend. That's what we were and this is what we are. How do we, how do we get this far off track? Now hold on for a minute. Here's what God's word guarantees us. When there is an absolute rejection of God and all that he's invested in this vineyard and there's only wild grapes and there's a rejection of his son, Here's what God guarantees. The consequence is what? Devastation. So it wasn't just Israel. It wasn't just the husbandmen in the vineyard, which were the spiritual leaders. But in a broader sense, any rejection of God or His Word comes with complete devastation. Go with me to John chapter 12. We'll be done. Look what it says, John 12, verse 48. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words, hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Let me ask you this. How many of you have ever seen someone, whether that was a personal witness, maybe as a family member, maybe it was in a church setting. You went through the gospel, there was an understanding. You were asking them questions, and once they spoke it, a lot of times when you hear it, you don't get it. The cables aren't connected. But when you ask them a question, they say it. comes out of their mouth, then it registers. Okay, this is truth. This is God's word. I am a lost sinner. I am hell bound. Jesus died to save me. It's not by works, but by grace, through faith. It's a free gift. If I confess and repent and cry out, he'll have mercy and save me. You get them to that point, but then what happens? They've got to either accept truth or reject truth. How many of you have ever seen someone come under conviction and then reject truth? 
probably wouldn't here have seen that. And you say, why, why would you want that kind of devastation? We have people in Spanish church that have been coming for two years, know the truth, understood the truth, and rejected the truth. Now God's given them another day of grace, and God sent another messenger. And they may beat him and stone him and revile him and kill him, not physically, but in their minds. But at the end of the day, it doesn't destroy truth. And devastation will be the consequence. So here's two questions, three questions today before we finish. Number one, we've got to understand there's a world out there rejecting truth. You can only preach it. You can only get them to understand it. But at the end of the day, they've got to make a decision. I accept or reject the cornerstone. Now, church, here's what I want you to understand. The last verse we read in that text is they've rejected the what? The chief cornerstone, the very stone they rejected has become what? The chief cornerstone. That's a whole different message we could preach and go through the text. But you know what the chief cornerstone of our nation ought to be? The Lord Jesus Christ. You know what the chief cornerstone of our church ought to be? The Lord Jesus Christ. You know what the chief cornerstone of our marriage ought to be? The Lord Jesus Christ. Then why is there devastation in our homes? Why is there devastation in our churches? Why is there devastation in our marriage? Because the chief cornerstone has been rejected in that perfect stone. Now, if that cornerstone is off kilter or the wrong size, the whole building goes off. The chief cornerstone was the most important stone being laid in the entire structure. Isn't it strange that even in Christian homes, opinion becomes the chief cornerstone? Tradition. This way we did it, and this is what I like, and so, you know what? I'm the chief cornerstone. Well, we can tell by the cracks in the structure. You know what happens in a church when Christ is no longer the chief cornerstone and the pastor becomes the chief cornerstone? Look how that turns out. That becomes a big mess real quickly. Are you with me? So there is rejection, not of the son, just the son, but it is a chief cornerstone that is being rejected and everything in that building that is built afterwards is going to become shaky. Now, church, here's, here's my last question for you. If they rejected the perfect son of God, should we ever expect, no matter how we say it, no matter how we preach it, I gave up a long time ago, I'm trying to get everybody to accept the truth. I'm going to preach the truth, and you've got to make a personal choice to accept the truth or to reject the truth. But here's my question this morning. Our churches would be perfect, and our pastors would have nothing to do if people would just say, I'm not rejecting God, His Word, His presence, His Holy Spirit. Because all of us have moments. We would literally have perfect Christianity if this were not the case. If every home had Jesus Christ as the perfect cornerstone. If every one of our ministries, it was about Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. If everything that was done, it's about Jesus Christ, the chief corner. It's not about me, not about my opinion. However God wants to work in my life, whatever truth he brings me, I'm simply going to submit, obey. And here was the response. When Christ came with this message, 
they had to choose to accept or reject. And this morning, we have some in here, obviously, never been saved. You have another chance this morning. And some have made it a habit of rejecting Jesus Christ. Now, here's what I can understand. The chief cornerstone wants you to have a building that lasts the storms, that, that survives the storms of life. And yet we choose to reject God, elevate ourselves. And when there's a messenger that brings something to our attention we don't like, let me lay my hands on his neck and shake the truth out of his body because I simply don't want to hear it. 